You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Yes, welcome back and hi everybody. Uh, We are in a series, as you can see, called Return to Me. We've been looking at the heart of God through a group of Hebrew writers called the Minor Prophets. And today we come to the book and the life of someone named Haggai. Our reading is from the second chapter of his book. You can follow along on the screen. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. That's the reading of his word. Come on, all God's people said, amen. Amen. Yeah. So far we looked at writers like Hosea, Habakkuk, Amos, but today let's flash forward 200 years past last week in Amos. Uh, We know from history that in 586 BC, the Babylonian Empire under King Nebuchadnezzar came in and conquered the southern kingdom of Israel, also called Judah. The Babylonians leveled the nation, leveled the city of Jerusalem, and worst of all, destroyed the Jewish temple built by Solomon and took the Jewish people into exile. That's the history. Those are the facts. And while they were living in exile after many years, a remnant, we read it in the passage, a remnant were allowed to return home to what was left of Jerusalem. It was sort of like a long nightmare COVID quarantine that was finally over. After being isolated for decades, the people poked their heads back out and headed back home. But when they got home, what was left at home wasn't home at all. So they decided to try to rebuild the center of the Jewish faith, build a new temple in which to worship, and they got going, but then the work stalled, and when it stalled, God raised up this man, this writer, this prophet named Haggai to spur them on to complete the work and establish a new place of worship. And that's what chapter 1 of of Haggai's two-chapter series is all about. But after they got going a second time, the work stalled a second time. So God then spoke through Haggai a second time to get it going again. And that's what chapter two of his two-chapter series is all about. 
So what would God say to his people now, this second time? What would he say to a people broken by decades of captivity, haunted by isolation, facing in their day famine, poverty, danger, threat? What would he say to a people in despair at the state of their once proud nation now brought low? What could help them? Well, this time, in this second word of his people, God gives them something that won't just get their hands moving, but will get their hearts moving as well. In the middle of all this, God lifts up and holds out in front of them what is perhaps the main theme of all the Bible, the main theme of the Christian story. It's the theme, the word idea of glory. Glory, not the glory of humans or the glory of conquest or the glory of victory, but the glory of Almighty God. See, at their lowest point, at the point at which they cannot go on, God begins to speak to them about past, present, and future glory. And I want to tell you today, by the way, if you feel like you're in the same place as these people, if the work in your life has stalled, Come on, some of you know what I'm talking about. Your life has been leveled. The threats you face seem like too much to bear. Let me encourage you today. There is something incredible for you in this passage that I hope won't just get your hands going, but it'll get your heart going as well. Today we're going to look at something that can help us with that. It's called the glory of God. Let's take a look at the glory of God in three parts. I'll be way longer on number one, shorter on two and three. So now you know. Let's take a look at this, the glory of God. Let's take a look at past glory, present glory, of course, future glory. And if you get a a bit of a nosebleed or some brain freeze as we go through this because it's a little bit high level, that's okay. Just blame it on our brother Haggai, not on me. As the late, great Millie Vanilli said, you've got to blame it on something. Your free Gen X reference for the day. If I've lost you so far, hopefully you're back. Anyway, you're welcome. Here we go. We're going to do our best. Number one, past glory. Or what we will call, should call, the story of glory. Would you say that with me? Story of glory. The story of glory. Let's start in verse two. God says, ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? So God's speaking to them about a former glory that the older gray-haired folk among them had now that they had seen and remembered as kids. Then he makes a second reference to past glory. It was the story of Israel coming out of slavery in Egypt. And God says this, for I'm with you. That's what I covenanted with you centuries before when you came out of Egypt and my spirit remains among you. So right here, these two sort of callbacks, we get a picture of God's plan for glory. And here it is, God plus people, plus a place. God plus people, plus a place. Two times here, God says, remember, me plus you, plus a place. That's always been my whole plan. He's saying, he said, I want to bring my glory. I've always wanted to bring my beauty, my goodness into your lives. And it looks like you plus me, plus a place. I don't just want to stay far away from you. I want to come near with you, be with you, dwell among you. Me, plus you, plus a place. What I said to you back in Egypt, I still mean today, my glory in your midst. Now to understand why this might 
would get their hearts moving, maybe ours today, let's go back to the beginning of something called redemptive history. Hang with me. Let's trace the story of glory. First, garden. Garden. The story of glory begins where the Bible begins, in the garden, a place God created to live with people, but because of sin, people were banished from the place. There was a a flaming sword that was placed at the entrance to the garden. This was a picture of the truth that a penalty for sin had to be paid, a debt had to be paid, and there was no getting back into the presence and glory of God unless someone went under the sword. Flash forward, second place, Egypt. God brings the Israelites out of slavery to meet with him in yet another place. God's presence and glory come down now on Mount Sinai. In that place was fire, earthquake, smoke. The people were warned not to touch the mountain or else the raw presence, raw glory of God would break out and it would be deadly to them. Only one man named Moses was allowed to approach the thick presence and glory of God. Moses though, you know the story, when he got close, He asked God for more. He said, God, show me your glory. But God replied, no, no, no. You cannot see my face. No one may see my face and live. God's saying this. The way back into the garden, it's still shut. The sword is still there. Moses said, okay, but God, at least, at least send your presence and glory with us somehow as we travel in the desert. And so God created a movable third place called a tabernacle. A tabernacle was God's way to begin to restore the garden. It was a place where people could begin back to draw near to God. It was God's presence plus people plus a place. The tabernacle was supposed to be like a, like a mini garden. It faced east like the Garden of Eden did. And just like that first garden was guarded by an angel, the center of this tabernacle was guarded by an angel. There was a thick curtain with angels embroidered on it that kept everyone out. And one priest could only go in one time a year. And at the center of that movable third place was the ark. It was the box of God's presence in which were the Ten Commandments, God's moral law. Over that on top of the ark was the called the mercy seat. The mercy seat covered the commandments. And on top of that, the priest, one time a year, would offer the sacrifice. The point is supposed to be clear here. This is an object lesson. It's saying to get back into the presence, the glory of God was costly. God takes things like sin and injustice and evil very seriously. And the only way back in was through a sacrifice. And years later, after a whole lot of moving around, that third place, the tabernacle, was brought to Jerusalem by Israel's greatest king named David. And now, now, in this story of glory, prophecies about a permanent place, a permanent house began to be made. It was said that a descendant of David would build a forever place for God, a forever house for God, a place plus people plus God for forever. And even though David's son Solomon built, yeah, a grand and beautiful fourth place, a temple, a bigger, better place, yes, where the priests offered sacrifices for years, that great temple wasn't the forever place God was talking about. Because in 586 BC, the Babylonians made sure of that. The Babylonians destroyed Solomon's temple. That 
looked like that, and the people went into exile. And while they were there in Babylon with their special place destroyed, prophets like Ezekiel began to speak of a new kind of temple that would allow the glory of God to come out from it, radiate from it, fill the whole earth, that all nations of the world would somehow come to a new, better, incredible, too-good-to-seeming-to-be-true temple, which is why here in the time of Haggai, when the people came back from exile and built that fifth place, the second temple, when they saw how small tiny, inglorious it was, how it paled in comparison to Solomon's temple. The older ones who had remembered it as kids, they cried. They openly wept. It was so sad and pathetic. And now God says to them, here through Haggai, I know it looks like nothing now, but that's okay because verse six, this is what I'm going to say. In a little while, not now, But in a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, sea and dry land. I will shake all nations and what is desired. Literally, the desire of all nations will come. How could could Haggai's word come true? How could Ezekiel's word come true? How could there be a descendant of David who would build a temple so glorious it would fill the whole world and impact every nation? Hmm. About 500 years after Ezekiel and Haggai, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, a descendant of David, was born. Did you know that the Gospel of John called Jesus something? It called him the tabernacle with skin on. And John said that those who saw Jesus saw his, guess what? glory. Another writer of another New Testament book called Hebrews said that Jesus was the radiance of God's glory, his exact representation. They were saying that Jesus doesn't just have God's glory. No, no. Jesus is God's glory. And Jesus Christ said the same. When the religious leaders of Jesus' day had a problem with his own claims to be the glory of God, this is what he said to them. He answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. They're talking about that second temple the governor Herod had built some additions on. It's 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, the disciples recalled what he had said. Then, because it was crazy, Then they believed, because no one could believe it. Then they believed the scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. He was saying this, I am what every humanly built temple is pointing to, a way to try to get back into God's presence. Oh, but I will be the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. I'm the one who will bring heaven to earth. I will go under the sword of God's justice. So that everyone, all peoples from all nations can get back in to the garden, to the presence and glory of God. The founders of other faiths, they may have built temples. Oh, but I'm the temple that's going to end all temples. And when Jesus Christ died, what was documented was something amazing, repeatedly recorded, was that the giant curtain in the Jewish temple was 
torn in two from top to bottom like a, like a pair of mighty hands from heaven were ripping it apart. See, through his death, Jesus dismantled the old temple and with his resurrection, he established the new one. See, the desire of all nations Haggai had talked about had come. And now for you and me today, when we unite with Christ by faith, the glory that was once hidden, it was kept in a box, hid behind a curtain. The presence of God that was once kept separate is now available to anyone by the Spirit of God. And human beings, hear me, not a building, human beings <laughs> become the temple of God. And together, we are being built into a temple in which God dwells. And he says, one day we'll fill the whole earth. That's the story of glory. It was better than Adam, Moses, David, Solomon, Ezekiel, Haggai, and you and me could have ever known. Can you see God's heart from the beginning of the garden till now was to unite himself plus a people plus a place to dwell with us and hear me in Jesus. It has come, is coming, and one day will come true in full. We'll come back to that. That's number one. That's the story of glory. Haggai pointed to and Jesus fulfills. Oh, but wait, because as the commercials say, there's more. Wait, there's more. There's number two. Not just past glory. There's a present glory God hints at. It isn't just past glory. There's present glory. God says something amazing about the new house he's going to build and bring through Jesus. He said the glory of that, this present house, will be greater than the glory of the former house. So why can he say this? Why would the glory of Jesus be greater? Well, there's a million reasons why. <laughs> but I've only got time for two. Some of you are saying, thank God. It made me real nervous. Okay. <laughs> only time for two. First, there's a new freedom for the individual. The present glory of Jesus means there's a new freedom for the individual. Maybe some of you have read or been forced to read once upon a time a book called Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress. Now, if you're a Marvel fan, you're a Star Wars fan, sci-fi, fiction, fantasy, whatever, and there's like the dream sequence people have. The dream sequence, they go in the cave, they go in the bed, they got a dream. It was all ripped off from Bunyan. Bunyan's book is one long dream sequence. And the story, his story, Pilgrim's Progress, speaks to the central problem all humans experience at some level and what all temples try to solve, which is the invisible weight of guilt and shame for what we have done or have not done. And if you say, man, I don't feel that today. I'm not feeling that mean a weight or shame. It's usually for one of three reasons. Number one, because you came here to Mosaic and you're already feeling a little better. What was on the front burner maybe got moved to the back. Or second, perhaps you're skeptic or an atheist and you're saying, I reject those concepts metaphysically. Don't agree with them. Or third, it's because you're super young. <laughs> you're like in your teens or your own roaring 20s. All right. And you're like, can't nobody make me feel bad for nothing? No one's got the right to judge me. Only I can judge me. I, you got the tattoo to prove it. You know, I feel badly about nothing and I don't plan on feeling bad about something in the future. But listen, many of you know this, the longer you live, and of course you can experience this at any age, the longer you survive. 
you realize that no one can even live up to their own standards. Say things like this. For example, I'm not going to judge anybody. I'm a non-judgmental person. But then you judge the judgy people, right? I'm not going to look down my nose at anybody, but you look down your nose at the people who look down their noses, right? They say things like, I'm going to be a great leader, but then it doesn't work out for you. I'm going to have a great marriage, but it doesn't go that way. I'm going to have great kids, but maybe that doesn't happen. It can grow into a giant burden over time of guilt and shame and weight that you carry for how you thought your life would go, but then it didn't. And this, hear me, is in part why temples were made, why people went there to do a sacrifice to take away the burden. And in Pilgrim's Progress, the main character, named Christian, talks about what happened to that burden when he met the final temple, Jesus. Look at this. He, and the, the quote goes like this. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending. And upon that place stood a cross. And a little below the bottom, a tomb. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, came up to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the tomb where it fell in and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and happy. It was very surprising to him at the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. And the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy, and he went on singing, blessed cross, blessed tomb, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. So let me ask you today, what weight do you have? Do you carry guilt, perhaps, over what you've done or not done? Shame over how things have gone for you, things you've done or not done. You know what Jesus wants to do for you and wants you to do, for you to do with that? He wants you to give that to him. He wants you to give it to him. The present glory of God, Jesus, has come to swallow it up for you. You don't have to carry it. There's new freedom for the individual. individual. Second, second, present glory also means this. It means new power for the community. Not just something for you as an individual, something for us as well. A man by the name of Jeremy Treat was a missionary. He went to Kenya to an extremely poor part of the capital of Nairobi. His life was changed by the visit. He wrote a book about it, and here's what he said. He said when he got there, he said he followed a stream. Some of you may have been to places in the world such as this. A place of open sewage that flowed right in front of shelters made of wood and mud. He saw children there playing in, that, in, the, in the sewage, near the sewage with no clothes on. And he passed by a 12-year-old girl his guide said was a prostitute. And he naturally, like you and I would, began to feel overwhelmed by the shock of the abject poverty until he heard the sound, the first sounds of where he was headed towards because he got closer and closer to a sound. And when he got there, he recognized it as the sound of human voices singing. And what he described as little more than a shack, it was a Christian church service going on. About 70 people were there singing at the top of their lungs, praising God in Swahili, with their arms raised in worship. He described it with four words like this, tears 
smiles, prayer, praise. What could possibly have given people in those conditions hope? He said this, quote, in that impoverished slum, I knew that the kingdom had not yet come in the fullness of God's future promise, but it was there in part in the midst of the most horrific suffering and brokenness I've seen. God's reign was breaking in, transforming the lives of real people. These people had nothing, yet they knew that in Christ they had everything. Throughout the day, I heard stories of how these people loved and served others in the community. What I saw in that little shack was a glimpse of the same power that will one day renew all of creation. See, what he's saying is this. Before, humans had to go to a temple. Now the glory of God can turn even a tragedy into a temple, into a place filled with the glory of God. And Jeremy Treat's saying that same glory that can change a slum into a temple will one day change the whole earth into a temple filled with the glory of God. And he's right. How? <laughs> Not just because of past or even present glory, but because of something. Number three, future glory. Future glory. God hints at this back in Haggai and closes his word to his people like this. He says, and in this, here's the word again, place, I will grant, what? Peace? Once more, God says, you plus me plus a place will bring something. But this time, he doesn't say there'll be glory in the place. He says there'll be something else. It's the word here, Peace. Now, you may know the Hebrew word for peace is actually the word shalom. It doesn't just mean the absence of conflict or like two people ignoring each other. <laughs> no, but it means the presence of an interlocking, beautiful, abundance-filled, justice-filled, holy kind of love, a love that pulls everything together, ends all evil. And God's saying, in the place that I will bring when I shake the world and I bring that new temple through the new temple through Jesus this whole world this place will become a place of shalom and when the early Christians when they saw Jesus of Nazareth live when they saw the healings that he brought the miracles that he did how he loved the women and the outcast when they saw his crucifixion and his impossible resurrection they knew Haggai's word was coming true the glory of God was beginning to break into the whole world not even death could hold it back anymore and they knew what Jesus had begun in part he would complete at his return which he promised would happen and by the way when a man predicts his own death and his own resurrection and then it happens, I'll take a word that whatever else he says about the future will come to pass as well. Thank you very much. And one of the writers, disciples named John said that one day because of the power and the glory of Jesus that the whole world would be like that first garden again except better. It wouldn't just be a garden. It would be a garden city full of people, full of shalom, full of the glory of God. He saw heaven coming down to earth, new heavens, new earth, everything renewed, a meshing, a shalom of God plus people plus a place which is this whole world. And he saw plants in it and roads and trees and food and drink and people embracing in the garden city. He saw a lot of things. But you know one thing that he didn't see? He names it, Revelation 21. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, Jesus, are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God 
gives it light, and the lamb is its lamp. All temples are gone because Jesus is there. And John saw what we lost in Eden. Jesus began to regain through the cross in present glory. And because of his resurrection, his future glory will change this whole world. In the place of the future garden city of God, there's peace. God plus people plus a place for forever. That is future glory. What do we do with all of it? And try to apply it quickly as we close. Like those same people Haggai was talking to, hear me, we look at whatever's been stalled in our lives. Let me ask you, what work has perhaps been stalled in your life? Like in your marriage, hmm? because you were married. Uh, with kids, with your children, with your work, maybe your health, your finances. What's, what work has been stalled? Hear me, let the hope of future glory move our hearts and our hands. What's been stalled in your life? Listen, on no one hand, no matter what's been stalled, hmm? no matter what's gone wrong, what's gone sideways, you can know that in the end, to be a Christian means that you will live in the presence of the glory of God for forever. Therefore, you can let go of the pressure to have it all perfect right now, all sorted out right now in this life. Hear me, you can actually stop building a temple to your own success. Hmm? You can stop building a temple to your own glory. That only produces anxiety. You weren't made to carry the weight and the burden of that. You can stop building a temple to fear. Oh, you can know that if God has the whole future of the world worked out, come on, he surely has your life figured out right now too. Let God's future glory and peace move your heart toward peace right now. And finally, you can let future glory Move your hands. Like he said in the passage, he says, now get to work. <laughs> get to work. Because, you know, God wants to fill the spaces that we create for him. Any place can become a kind of a temple. At work, you can, you can create a space through the excellent job that you do. Showing up on time. Smiling at those coworkers. Honoring your customers or vendors or clients. And yeah, your bosses. Yeah. At the office, you ask God to come fill those cubicles or classrooms or boardrooms or job sites or cash registers where you work. At home. You create spaces for God to fill. You get up, you read the word, you pray the word, you speak the word. In your relationships, you ask God to come. Fill these difficult places, God. And sure, yeah, here on Sunday, as we get to work in worship, we gather and we ask for the presence and glory of God to meet us. None of these places will be perfect, but they are a start. Hear me. All God has ever wanted is himself plus people, plus a place. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he loves you. He wants to be with us one day. It'll be the whole world. Today, it can start with just one life, maybe even yours. Let me take a moment and pray for you. Pastor Peter will come and close us. Lord, we thank you for this vision that you've held out before us. It's beyond what we might have even thought coming in here today. Lord, I'm praying that the, the highnessness, the far offness of it would actually inspire, settle us in our hearts today. Help our hands to get moving. Help our hearts to get moving. That we would co-labor with you and create spaces for you to fill. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. 
For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.